Welcome to Dr. Eric's Relentless Vitality Podcast. Our focus is on optimizing physical and mental vitality, maximizing performance, and extending lifespan. Dr. Eric is a licensed physician with a wealth of expertise in age management and preventive medicine, whose goal is enabling his patients to stay young, feel their best, and enjoy a higher quality of life. Exactly. So, um, yeah, it was a good conference down there at Wild Health in Kentucky, and uh, your lecture was was excellent. Was excellent. So, um, yeah, I figured it'd be great. You'd be great uh, guest to have on the show and um, and talk a little bit more about stuff. I try to get a varied mix of people on, on the podcast, you know, other physicians and even trainers, nutritionists, just talking about kind of the same stuff we talked about wild health, you know, uh, health and performance optimization, all that. So, um, I guess tell, tell the listeners, I guess, you, you know, as long or short as you want a little bit about yourself, your journey, how you got to be where you are. Oh man. Wow. Well, you know, my, uh, it was a cold night in South Dakota and my dad snuggled up to my mom and uh, one thing led to another. No, we don't want to go that far back. <laughs> no, not that far back. Okay, all right. All right. It, gets a little, it gets a little awkward, so we'll stop there. I was waiting for you to do the airplane thing. Said first there's a big fireball, then the earth cooled, then the dinosaurs came, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, I haven't. And, and so, yeah, no, I um, actually did grow up in South Dakota on a dairy farm, and, uh, and you know, my mom said I always wanted to be a doctor, and... Um, so I went on and went to medical school at Vanderbilt and uh, residency fam- family medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester and, and then continued on doing uh, executive health in Rochester and uh, just really being, becoming very curious about, um, you know, what is this thing we call healthcare and starting to think about, you know, why do we do what we do? And the fascinating thing happened. I realized I started to become more of a farmer again. I, I started to be, recognize that, gosh, this whole idea that we diagnose and treat disease is uh, a little bit odd uh, when really what we're trying to do is grow and create health. And so I had an internal paradigm shift while I was a resident at Mayo, and it, it caused me to start to look at all of this great basic science and this really interesting um, you know, way of being able to interrogate the human physiology. And, and in doing so, it started me looking, looking at the world in a different way. Because if you start to be curious about how health is created or what are underlying causes of disease, you come up with very different plans of action than if what you're trying to do is to name it, blame it, and tame it. Right. And, and that's kind of what we're supposed to do in healthcare. We're, we're supposed to give people a whole bunch of disease numbers, right? They're ICD-10 codes. Right. So we can give them billing numbers, which are CPT codes. And, and, it, and it causes a, an interesting shaping of our mind. You know, the more things that we do most frequently, uh, we basically, basically cause our minds to be shaped to understand the world that way. And so what we do... Um, creates a, a cognitive bias in us. So um, I just have been really fascinated with how do we look at uh, this problem of disease and dysfunction in a more and more realistic way. And so awesome. Yeah, it's, been, it's been a wonderful, I, I, I enjoy practicing medicine more than I think any other doctor I know. I have a ball. Yeah. Uh, it, it is an absolute great time because Hey, the body heals, and yeah. if you figure out what's holding it back, um, it some amazing things happen. Yeah, if you give it what it needs, it can do some amazing things to itself, right? 
Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I can tell. I mean, I can, I picked that up the first, when I first saw you talk about your, you just have that exuberance, that jovial, fun, just, you know, joie de vivre, you know, you know, just you exude it. So I love that. I love that. I'm sure you impressed that on the patients too. I didn't always. I really didn't always. I mean, I'll tell you that it did really have this transition when I recognized that, wow, I don't, I don't have to be the one to control everything. It's, but it's my job to make that to, to figure out what's going on behind the scenes after the diagnosis. A lot of times when people get a diagnosis, that kind of ends the thought trail right. behind what we do, right? Oh, you have lupus. Oh, you have uh, uh, dementia. Oh, you have uh, multiple sclerosis. And, and the diagnosis should be the beginning of the questioning. You know, that's just, that is just one signpost along the line of understanding that pathway of dysfunction that's going on in that particular person. You know, Sir William Osler said that it's more important to understand the person that has a disease than the disease the person has. And, and that quote. is just, yeah, it is a great quote, but it's, it's really reality. Yeah. You know, it's, it's because the, the, the person who has the disease, you know, that's that person that has come from a history you know, they have their own unique genetics, but they also have had their own unique exposures that have created a unique body at that time that is going to then be susceptible uh, to certain things and have other really remarkable strengths. Yeah. So, it, because if you can see the eyes through, if you can see the world through curiosity, it just makes everything more fun. I actually wrote a book called Curiosity Heals the Human. I rarely talk about it. I wrote it for me more than anybody. Uh, it was it was just stuff I had to get out, right. and uh, and it, I have some workbooks, uh, some workbook questions for people to go through to figure out, you know, what are some of the underlying problems that may be going on in their health and well being. But a lot of it has to do with questions about, you know, how, when were they last well, and getting people to be curious again about this trajectory of their health. Because uh, so many people have their own answers, yeah. you know, can find their own answers. And it's really fun to get to bear witness to, to that happening. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. No, I love that. I think that's a great approach. And it's, as you mentioned, so different from what we, we were originally taught in traditional medicine. You know, like, you know, like you said, be curious, always ask why. Well, I've got anemia. Well, why do you have anemia? You know, well, I'm iron deficient. Well, why are you iron deficient? Let's, let's dig deeper, peel the onion back, you know, so. Um, it's right. like you said, the journey begins at that point. So, right. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. Lately I've been doing a lot of, um, kind of like you, you know, reading back on some of the old, the old stuff, right. From whether it's uh, an old, I was reading some, some of the old, uh, guys back in the 1800s, back when, in, you know, physical culture, you know, George Jowett and Eugene Sandow and all that to talk about physical culture, not just the body, but the mind and the spirit. And then going back and reading some of these old books from like Dr. Broda Barnes and, some of these practitioners from way back before we had all these fancy diagnostics and all they had was their, their brain and their, and their eyes and their hands. And they just like, you know, putting their hands on the patients and listening and talking to them like you, what you're describing, you know, it's amazing how much wisdom is if you, you go back and read it, you know, fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you really just the power of observation. We think of indigenous cultures and, and you know, traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, Right. You know, all that was there was the power of observation and curiosity. Right. And right. entire systems of healing and uh, of diagnosis and treatment have emerged out of observation. 
And so, you know, the, you know, the answers are, there's many more answers than what we often think there are. Sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> do you even have, you probably don't even have like a, a typical patient. You see all kinds of stuff, right? You do, you know, autoimmune, you do a lot of brain health, Alzheimer's, and we'll talk about that, but you, do you have a wide, you, is there anything you don't take care of or do you even have? Not, I, I, I like either very complex chronic disease um, or people who have very high ambitions for their health. Yeah. You know, it is, it is the, you know, the, the folks who want to dive the deepest possible into what are the causes and what, what is the very most they can do. Uh, I take on a very few people who do that. And then I also mentor a lot of physicians um, in our, in our clinic at Maxwell clinic in Nashville. Uh, and I mentor a lot of other clinicians as they are, also learning this pathway of how do we look at individuals as systems of systems that have a self-healing capacity and how can we better understand and hack those individual mm -hmm. systems so yeah and we and and really the funny thing is when you're if you think about a disease-centered model everybody has to become a specialist of a certain disease because what we use to treat those diseases are well-dosed poisons. And so, you know, and, and that's why we have something called a therapeutic window. Mm -hmm. You know, too much of a drug is toxic. Right. Uh, enough can have an, a different type of an effect. But when you're focusing on creating health, you can really treat or at least look for the underlying common causes to a vast array of diseases. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's a little paradigm breaking. You know, the, the person that comes in with multiple sclerosis or autoimmune thyroid disease um, or eczema or dementia or even cardiovascular disease may have actually similar underlying processes, but it is their particular genetic susceptibilities that cause the emergence of one disease pattern versus another. So, you know, it's, it's actually in some ways harder, in some ways easier to practice this style of medicine. Sure. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. You're right. It can, the, the layers of complexity certainly start to, to add up, but like you said, that's kind of where the fun begins too, the challenge and the fun. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Well, I want to talk about brain health for sure. Cause I know that's a, a an area, definite area of focus of yours. I, I'd love to talk a little bit about mitochondrial health too. And, and the gut, I know mitochondrial health of course is big. And we talked a little bit about that down in Kentucky, but, um, you know, that's kind of a buzzword. A lot of people are getting into that. I've been interested in that for years and it's fascinating to kind of learn about, you know, for me, it's like, I try to do what we talk about. Let's treat the, treat things at the basic level, treat at the cellular level, get the cell and the mitochondria functioning everything else. Like you said, will kind of take care of itself. So um, what's your, I guess, what's your, do you have a, a thought or an approach to, to that realm? Yeah, well, you know, so uh, the Institute for Functional Medicine is really kind of one of the organizations that started this whole idea around cause-centered medicine, and and um, and I'm one of the early members of that organization, and uh, it's grown tremendously. Um, we have a certification program for physicians that go through, and I lead one of the six modules people have to go through in order to do their um, get a certification and I lead the module on bioenergetics. And so my actual, the, the thing I lecture on for way too many, or it never feels like enough hours, but, uh, the mitochondrial health is such a massive topic. Uh, but this is, this is a deep interest of mine. And, 
um, love teaching clinicians about this, this endeavor. And, and I think you know, one of the most important things about mitochondrial health is that it's not simple. It, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to this. Eh? And it is a, you know, the mitochondria are so fascinating. I mean, they're essentially uh, archaic bacteria that invaded another cell. And then these two cells uh, evolutionarily built this relationship. The mitochondria gave up most of its functions as a tiny little cell, gave up most of its DNA, uh, and just became a slave to make power, to basically become this furnace in the middle of the cell. Right. And then the, the nucleus of the host cell said, okay, well, we're going to provide everything else that you need. We're going to provide all these other genes and proteins and capacity. And there became this symbiotic relationship because in order to make energy, you know, like the mitochondria do, they have to burn oxygen, oxygen and fuel. And that's a messy, messy process. When you burn something, you get soot and smoke. Right. And soot and smoke is essentially what we call free radicals or oxidative stress. And, and, uh, and that's a dangerous thing to have inside a cell. So if you are having a misfunctioning mitochondria, then the fuel oxygen mixture, much like the carb, you know, carburetor, um, starts to get mismatched or doesn't burn completely. You get a lot of incompletely burned oxygen and incompletely burned fuel. And then those molecules are highly reactive and sticky and go around and damage the proteins, the fats, and the DNA of that mitochondria. And the mitochondria starts shutting down because it's becoming injured unto itself. Um, and, and it is that fact that these oxidative stress molecules cause so much freaking damage that it is why the cell has outsourced it, right? I, you know, I think it's like, yeah, yeah, we're gonna put the power plant in the, in the uh, low rent part of town here because we know it's gonna make a lot of mess. <laughs> and that's essentially what our cells do. Uh, they say, yeah, those mitochondria, that's definitely, that's, that's definitely down the industrial area of the cell. Right. And um, so, um, yeah, there's, you can just go on and on and on about mitochondrial health and, and the dynamics of it. But I think the most important thing to just recognize is that it's about a, an efficient fuel oxygen mixture and, uh, and dealing with um, making sure you produce the least soot and smoke possible. Uh, you clean it up quickly uh, and you make that engine as efficient as possible. Um, so, yeah. I mean, you, you can pull my chain and I can go for, uh, I can go for about 12 hours on the mitochondria. So oh, sure. watch, watch out, watch out. <laughs> I'm sure. I think you and I are both in on a, on a couple of threads back in the uh, IPS a while back. And I know you know, Bill Seeds was talking, he's big on using ketone esters and ketones. I know obviously ketosis is big to kind of optimize the efficiency of the cell. I don't know if you utilize that much or not. I know, I know a lot of people enjoy it and do well with it. Others do not. Other people talk about <clears throat> worried about too much acidity and want to alkalinize the, the system, so to speak. But um, do you use much of those in that, that in, uh, with your patients? You know, exogenous ketones uh, using beta hydroxybutyrate or different ketone mixtures, or um, I think has, I really use it as a point to kind of help with craving issues. Mm -hmm. uh, we will help. Um, I, I think it does have some value. Um, but Ketones that you make yourself have a very different effect than the ketones that come in from the outside. Sure. And, I, and I think, you know, we can, 
we can certainly overuse those. Um, sometimes, you know, people just want a shortcut frequently. Of course. And, and, and uh, just like, you know, saying, oh, my cholesterol is high, I'll take a statin. Uh, that's a really convenient shortcut to make your numbers look better. Uh, likewise, um, sometimes we can utilize um, nutritional supplements as, as shortcuts that don't give us as much benefit as if we created them from the inside out. Uh, but again, um, and also, I mean, I deal with a lot of people with dementia, and we're often trying to get into a dense ketosis with people with dementia. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be really remarkably helpful in sub-segments of individuals, but you have to really watch the lipids. Um, you, can, you can cause a, how you get to ketosis tremendously matters in those cases. Uh, and because uh, the, the ketotic state itself can give more energy to some of the damaged neurons and help a limping brain start to move forward with some more energy. But if you're using fats that are kind of inflammatory, or cause more oxidative stress, or frankly, just cause more LDL to build up in the blood vessels, uh, you can cause more problems than you solve. So it's, it's just important to monitor, you know, whatever things you do in your health, it's really important to monitor. It's like, all right, great, I'm gonna run this. Ex you know, here's, here's a real difference in, I think, how I practice, is that I view every person as an experimental one. You know, we can do all kinds of data, and I've been doing uh, genomic analysis since 2000, nutrigenomic analysis since 2003. Uh, we've been doing whole genome analysis since 2013. Um, you can do a lot of investigation, but the proof is always in your pudding. Yeah. And so measuring your biochemistry and seeing, hey, this is what I think is going to work. And I think, you know, a lot, we use genetics and a lot of these we always just do our best to make a good, to help our patients run a good experiment. But then we should always check on its effectiveness. It is what we think should happen actually happening. And, uh, and that's, that's when we know we've hit, that we've hit the right. Uh, I mean, if it doesn't happen, then we have to go back to the drawing board mm -hmm. and ask a different set of questions because we really don't have this whole human thing figured out yet. <laughs> I mean, we're learning more of what we don't know every day, I think. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a good segue into brain health and Alzheimer's. I know that's a good topic, a favorite topic of yours. And I don't personally don't have a lot of Alzheimer's patients, but obviously I do have patients in my demographic that are obviously, like you mentioned earlier, trying to get to be the best that they can be to prevent themselves from getting to that point. So mm -hmm. talk about some optimal brain health pointers or ideas, tips, suggestions for uh, people, you know, in their 40s, 50s and 60s to, to kind of, you know, stay where they're at or maybe make it a little bit better. Um, you probably right. have a perspective on that, seeing right. both ends of that. All right. So, so Eric, when do you think Alzheimer's prevention should start? Wow. The earlier, the better, right? 20s, 30s. <laughs> Younger. Younger. Wow. Teens. Younger. <laughs> right out of the bed. Fresh, fresh, brand new baby. Preconception. <laughs> I believe no, it. I believe no, it. seriously. I mean, it, it's really pretty profound. I mean, the, the, health of the, the health of the mother, you know, yeah. when, that, when that egg is being formed and that first, it's astounding how, you know, how we are literally aging from the moment we're conceived in many ways, right? right? Aging is essentially having more degeneration than regeneration. 
and we, we stopped really growing and building and about age 25, 28. And from that time on, uh, really the amount of degeneration is in excess of the amount of regeneration across all organs. Right. And so the, the more you can do earlier, the better. I mean, getting, getting teenagers to increase their muscle mass, to increase their vitality, to improve their insulin sensitivity, um, that is going to have massive effects uh, many decades down the road. And so I, I think when you're talking about peak performance, all of these things you're doing for people early on before that they're ever worried about starting to lose their memory um, is, is doing a vast amount of good. And I think it should be really um, emphasized just how much good people are doing for themselves when they are seeking their peak performance early in life. Um, it, it, as long as they're not doing things that are, are damaging, but again, that's why we monitor. For sure, for um, sure. But yeah, um, yeah I, I'm very passionate about dementia. Uh, the reason being, uh, you know, in Proverbs, it says, you know, we should value wisdom above all things. And, and I think that that's quite wise. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Maybe, that, maybe that's a self-referential circle right there, right? But, um, but I, do, I think that's true. And, and wisdom is held most profoundly in elders. And, and, and uh, the, the, the condition of eldership, right, to be aged and, and to have the f your capacity of knowledge to have accumulated your knowledge to a point where you can start discerning things as wisdom, where you have advanced pattern recognition skills, where you can smooth the way for the next generations. I think wisdom is our most valuable resource that we have on the planet right now. Yeah. And, and when we start to see memory loss occurring, we start to see brain injury accumulating in individuals and either because of vascular problems or autoimmune problems or degenerative problems, that is a tragedy beyond really uh, anything that our society can handle. So outside of the personal tragedy, I think that we need to be deeply committed to doing whatever we can to uh, grow and preserve wisdom. So yeah, we, we have, um, uh, we are doing some gr very interesting stuff with regard to um, uh, dementia and actually seeing reversal in early cages, cases. Oh, and, awesome. and, but I, again, I emphasize the earlier, the better, right. you, know, right. you know, the worst, do you know actually what the worst, I think the most dangerous symptom uh, of dementia is the most dangerous symptom that has a shows a very poor prognosis. That symptom is denial. Mm, I can yeah, I can see that because in people who have a denial that oh, I'm really not losing my, I'm really not losing my sharpness. I'm really not that bad, you know. It, I'm just getting a little older. Hogwash. I mean, when people blame things on age, the only way that's valid, only way it's valid is that if every other human that age has that problem. For sure. Right? It's yep. the only, re only way you can blame it on age because if that is the case, that means everybody that age has to have that problem. Right. Now, aging, sure, that's accumulated injury. Uh, you can blame a lot on that, but then you have to ask the question, why? Why are you having accumulated degeneration? What, what's going on with that? And, um, 
so yeah, it's, it is, uh, it's, it's very challenging. It is the most challenging disease I think that there is to, to engage. Yeah. And I think obviously there's a lot more awareness of it and, you know, I've, I've been getting into the genomic side too. And obviously you've been doing it for a long time. And I think we, you know, people are more aware of the, you know, the, the SNPs and the genetics and like the APOEs and things of that nature. So that's always a, a good point of conversation too. Again, catching out early and, and making some lifestyle changes as quickly as you can. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that you deal with that a lot too. I'm sure. Right. It's super important. I mean, knowing your APOE status is probably the most important genetic marker that you can know um, because it really sets you up with an understanding of just, you know, what is your likelihood for having um, advanced neurodegeneration? Um, and, you know, what even, you know, people who are APOE44, which is kind of our most dangerous um, predisposing genotype for individuals with Alzheimer's disease, also have an incredible increased susceptibility to injury from head injury. You know, they are the ones most likely to not recover well from a traumatic brain injury. That, that, that kid who's on the football field that is an APOE 4-4, and they get a whack to the head. Yeah. It's an entirely different situation than somebody who is an APOE 2-2. And, um, and I think that's, you know, I mean, that's just reality. It's hugely so it, important. Yeah, hugely important, for sure. So, um, you know. I was, I was actually, I loved football, played a lot of it when I was uh, young, uh, enjoyed it tremendously. I am sure I accumulated some neuronal damage from it. I am certain of that. Um, and I was really glad when my kids chose not to play it. So I was like, whew, dodged a bullet. So. What are some of the biggest lifestyle and dietary changes you make for those patients who are with three, four, four, fours? Well, I think falling in love with olive oil is one of the most important things you can do. Yeah. Olive oil really has very few downsides. It has massive upsides and improves insulin sensitivity. It's anti-inflammatory. Uh, it doesn't raise your LDL. It has um, <clears throat> all kinds of polyphenols in it that decrease inflammation. Uh, it decreases um, the buildup of plaque in arterial walls. I mean, it, it, that's it, as just a a simple thing. You know, how can you remove uh, how can you remove some of the more inflammatory fats from your diet uh, and increase? There's no genotype that doesn't do better on olive oil in that way, but especially APOE44. Um, I'm um, golly, the list is super long. Matter of fact, the list is so long. I developed a software platform to try to help people do this work <laughs> because. Um, yeah, because you know, doctors are, are beset with these really difficult questions of how do I treat somebody? Uh, you know, how, how do we how do we treat this whole person? And so we create a platform called Maxwell Brain, and right now we're testing it in Arizona. Uh, we have uh, made an arrangement with Quest nationwide, and we'll be rolling that out nationwide, awesome. where um, physicians and our Medicare providers can. Uh, um, just order Maxwell Brain. Uh, the patients with cognitive decline will get some labs done. Uh, we'll extract information from the clinical chart. Uh, and then we'll go through a process of assessing their diet, their exercise, their uh, community support, um, their toxin exposure, um, multiple parameters regarding their biochemical health, um, 
multiple parameters around their genetic susceptibilities, their medications. Uh, we're putting in modules to do quantitative EEG and volumetric MRI analysis to put that into the package. And, and what happens is the doctor gets this great report that basically said, these are the multifactorial problems that um, are likely pushing this person towards dementia. And this is what you can do about it. So it gives a very clear, why don't you consider changing these medications? Uh, consider these drug-drug interactions. Um, uh, these are the supplements that may be beneficial. This is the type of diet that would be beneficial. Um, and then it, we also create a report for the coach and we create a report for the patient so that we can start doing this. You know, trying to practice comprehensive systems medicine is really, really tough. And we need tools so that we as doctors can do the job doctors need to do, which is interface with the patient, right? Right. Solve the human problems that are there because we have all this data. There's no way we can keep up with it. We should find ways to embrace it so that we can do the really important work of helping our patients apply the things that are going to be most helpful for them. And, um, yeah. So yeah, it was kind of funny. That's when I think of, you know, what do we do for a person? Um, you know, there's, everybody has limited time, money, energy, and effort, right? We just have limitations on our resources. So the big question is how do we apply, you know, our job as physicians many times is, is to be the steward of our patient's resources, you know, to do our very best to, make recommendations that have the most potential for good and the least potential for harm. Yeah. And that's, you know, really our job and, and having a data data source to help move that along. Um, this can be helpful. And then that's we cool. use the brain in our plasma program. So in you, know, you said the plasma. Yeah. So the, the, what, what, we, what we're doing for dementia, which is very unique in the United States, we're really the most, uh, We've done more of this than any other center in the United States, which is therapeutic plasma exchange um, for the treatment of dementia. And, um, and while this is a, we have great data to support doing this, uh, a large multinational multi-center trial, um, one of the largest apheresis trials ever completed actually, that studied people with mild and moderate dementia and showed that individuals with moderate dementia we could slow their progression by 60% over 14 months wow. by doing plasma exchange. But more importantly, more importantly, is people with mild dementia actually were better 14 months later than when they had started. Wow. So not only did they decline less than placebo, they actually had improvement in cognition, improvement in executive functioning. And in this study, it was shown that patients who had this plasma exchange done uh, they had normalization of their amyloid beta-42, their phosphorylated tau, which are two molecules that are misfolded proteins that have a lot, have something to do with Alzheimer's disease. You know, getting, getting them normalized, we think is a good sign. And then they also did uh, PET scans and they showed that FDG PET scans, uh, this process caused fewer brain cells to die in the patients who had plasma exchange. That's amazing. Not only that, we know this process uh, in, in our laboratory science, it, it turns on multi-tissue regeneration. Hmm. And so uh, this essentially hits a reset button for body-wide stem cell activation. So we're, 
we're we're studying this. We're we have patients flying in from you know really uh, we have international patients. We have patients from around the United States coming in for this particular procedure um, uh, because there's just not many places to do this. No, uh, um, and it's and it's not easy, frankly. It's not something that you can jump into and uh, start up. So yeah, I'm sure there's a lot more to it than what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, so, you, but plasma exchange, you think plasma, oh, it's no big deal. I can go, you know, do a plasma thing, but I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more to it. I mean, there's a lot of people talking about, you know, with exosome therapy and stem cell treatments, of course, and things of this nature. So this is kind of mm -hmm. like a whole nother level. Yeah. And so with all those, that's great. You're putting in things that may be beneficial to the body. But what about all of those inhibitory substances that are hanging out in the plasma? Right. So we, we know if you can take something crappy out of somebody's diet, it probably does them more good than putting something healthy in. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, Fair. Absolutely. And yep. so, and, and so that's a microcosm of this as we, and, and what apheresis or plasma exchange is, is you get, um, you know, two large uh, IVs, one in each arm and you pull blood out one side, gets mixed with an anticoagulant, goes through a centrifuge, gets spun down. We remove the liquid part of the blood. Um, and then the cells, which are left, get mixed with a replacement plasma fluid. And then that remixed clean blood goes back into the body. And we do that continuously, uh, removing somewhere anywhere between, you know, three to five liters of plasma. Wow. So um, wow. we're, we're doing an entire blood cleaning. And yeah, literally. Uh, yeah. yeah, really, literally. And how, it's, uh, how long does that process take? It takes about three hours. Three hours, yeah. Yeah, and it's a, and we have a, um, an, uh, an entire algorithm set up to help understand exactly uh, what are the details that are necessary to decrease the risk and uh, of any procedure that's there. But yeah, it's pretty pretty exciting stuff. So we have information about that uh, at our clinic website, which is maxwellclinic.com. Yeah, and um, so they can learn more there. That's fantastic. Yeah, that was one of my next questions, asking about the plasma program. Are you don't any other clinical indications you're using that for? Or is it mostly? Oh my gosh, yeah. Well, I mean, we're we're an apheresis center, so the, the the standard indications of autoimmune disease. I mean, this is the standard of care for severe autoimmune disease. Uh, we treat Guillain-Barre, myasthenia gravis, multiple sclerosis, neuromyelitis optica, chronic inflammatory demyelinating disease. Um, we just had a patient that came that came in and had an atypical Charcot-Marie tooth. Uh, uh, disease and we didn't know if it was going to help, but his limbs had shrunk down to where his thighs were essentially the size of my forearms, and his arms had shrunk. His body was like an apple. The only thing he could kind of exist on was steroids. Actually, an ER doctor, and just his his life had just kind of been crushed. Right. Um, horrible pain, horrible pain. He said like a thousand needles being jammed into his arms at night when he would try to roll over. He couldn't grab. He couldn't clench his hand enough to grab the pillow and move it without uh, triggering a massive pain loop. Um, he couldn't stand on his own in the shower. Um, and we did started doing. And and he had been seen at Mayo, been seen at uh, Cleveland Clinic. Um, we did some uh, additional, uh, more research-based autoimmune testing, and and found indication that we think plasma exchange would be a benefit for him. And, and the first night after he had his first plasma exchange, he went back to the hotel and, and he, came, he came back um, 
And he said, I can't believe it. I'm, I, I actually slept four hours last night. I haven't slept more than 30 minutes at a time, you know, in the last two years. Wow. And then he, then he calls us back on Saturday crying, just crying. His voice message is one of my favorite things I've ever heard. And he just crying. He said, I, I, I'm, I could stand in the shower today on my own. I, I was able to go up and down my stairs in my house, which I have not done for two years. Uh, and then I walked around my living room in circles just because I could. I had no pain. I was able to sleep through the night. And, you know, now he is up to, uh, he, he's been having repeated treatments, and he is now up to 16,000 steps a day. Wow. That's he's, rebuild, he's rebuilding his muscle. So um, plasma exchange is a very accepted standard of care um, modality for many autoimmune diseases. Um, and uh, and we're we're just taking this uh, fundamental process out to make a difference in chronic degenerative diseases. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I remember you talked a little bit about that at the conference, and that was that blew my mind. That's as you mentioned, just little steps. What big changes? Now look at them. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Just to, honestly, I just I feel so humbled to get to to get to do that kind of work. Yeah, so, and like, and and I think my my point is that. People should never, ever, ever, ever give up. The body is designed to heal. Yeah. The body is designed to heal. And we just shouldn't, you know, if you're not getting help somewhere, then please go somewhere else. You know, if you're not, you don't give up. Uh, human life, we only get to go around one time. Right. It's precious. Um, and uh, the gifts that each of us have to give in the world are really uh, unique to us. So any early, any early departures uh, or lessening of our potential is really a shame. Well said. Very well said. What about, I, I wanted to ask you about um, like photomodulation, phototherapy, the Vilite and different things of that nature. I, I think you use that. I looked at your website and that's something I was interested in myself, you know, probably a couple of years ago and I just never mm -hmm. bit the bullet and like looked into it. I kind of forgot about it. And then I, when I was looking at your website, I like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Thanks. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's all kinds of ways. So we we do a lot of quantitative EEG um, to do objective assessment of brain function. You know, one of the things I can't stand about the brain is the fact that it is so incredibly uh, subject to bias, right? Because each of us have to take a biased brain. We doctors or 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 pastors, priests, psychologists, you know, health coaches, we all take a biased brain, our biased brain to understand the biased brain of somebody else. Right, right. Right? And so, and so I love objective data. Mm -hmm. And I love being able to get an EEG, which measures the electrical parts of the brain, and then compare it against databases of average normal brains. And when you do that, you get this remarkable opportunity to start seeing your brain as an organ that needs to be cared for, right? And, you know, it's, and people that have struggled with depression or anxiety or, or failure to perform or attention problems, all of a sudden can start having compassion on themselves. They can start saying, hey, you know, my, my brain has a problem. Right. You know, my, my soul isn't broken, right? I am not, I, my, you know, my person is not, uh, uh, you know, is not, uh, should not be shamed here. I just need to do something to help it. So, and if you do quantitative EEG, then you can do things like neurofeedback or electrical stimulation. So um, while the photobiomodulation is one way you can put energy into the brain um, and you can shine 
uh, LED lights in, uh, and some gets in. I think that the, the nasal applicator for the VIA light is probably the most powerful component of it uh, because you're, you're able to get past some of the soft tissue and, um, and create some energetic pathways. Um, I think the jury is still out. I'm waiting for larger studies to really get completed. Um, I think that it, I really, but if you combine both the gamma and the alpha LED lights um, uh, that, that are you know, using different nanometer uh, wavelengths, I, I, I have seen some really good improvements in people's cognitive performance with that, but it's not a, it's not a home run. You know, whom it is going to help? Um, I haven't really figured out the, 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 and that's why we do quantitative EEG. We're always trying to figure out what is going to work and whom, right? Because everybody has a solution. I right. mean, it, it kind of crack it up, you know, all these little devices and, you know, you know, wearables and things you can slap on your head, you know, everybody makes claims, but what is going to work and whom is, is the bigger and I, and I don't know that we've really figured that out. I, I do think it takes probably higher amounts of energy to be shown into the brain uh, to really get the benefit that we'd like to see than the via light is going to get in uh, at optimally. At the same time, the amount of light the via light uses is not something that's going to harm. And that, and that is always goes at the highest level of importance uh, the higher energy beams, you know, um, some of the lasers that are being used, um, uh, especially some of the 660 nanometer lasers, uh, you leave them on that one area too long and you can induce a burn. And so it makes me a little nervous, right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Exactly. So safety first, safety first. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, that's something I was interested in just trying out myself. You know, like I said, it, it looked, as you mentioned, it's probably not going to harm anything at that wavelength and that mm. power. So can, it can only, uh, can only help. So, and, and, you know, and again, you know, most important thing people can do is exercise. Yeah. I mean, really just, it's the fundamentals are always the fundamentals. Get your eight hours of sleep a night. There really is not a substitute, no matter how much people want to say there is and how much people want to condense sleep and say, oh, I don't need that much. The data is pretty darn clear. You know, we detox our brain when we sleep at night. Uh, our glymphatic channels open up and, and that basically causes the channels in between the cells of our brain to open up and we drain out the toxins that we made during that day. And without enough time to do that, without enough deep sleep, a brain fog, all kinds of uh, neuroinflammation continues to build up. So, for sure, it's a, it's an, it's a, it, the fundamentals are always still the fundamentals. Always, yeah. Those are the big things I help on with my patients: sleep and stress, and like you said, movement, and exercise. We're meant to move. We're meant to, you know, breathe. You know, like you said, the basics. You know, you got to do those first. Yeah, the body is create. The body is designed to heal. It just is designed to heal. For sure. What What are your current uh, What's your current schedule looking like this year? Any big challenges or projects above and beyond all the other ten thousand things you got going on? Uh, yeah, I'm actually consulting on helping to start a new medical school. How about that for fascinating? Oh, yeah, yeah. I can't say much more about that, but it's a. Uh, okay. You know, we're we're. Um, What's really fascinating is how much the, how much the, the clear recognition of this upstream systems-based approach 
you know, you and I are engaging in uh, is gaining more and more acceptance and interest. Yeah. And um, also working on a way to make, um, you know, major goal of ours is to achieve health, vibrant health and longevity to 120 and beyond. Yeah. And to make that, make that simple and achievable, you know, it's, it, it's, cool. it's the, uh, it's the achievable part that we need to work on because yeah. um, very high resource individuals uh, can, can get a whole lot of shortcuts done, but they're yeah. not often accessible for everybody. Right. For sure. And that's, and that's where we need to get. Oh, I absolutely. I think that's an a very laudable goal. And I'm, I'm with you on that one. hundred percent. Yeah. You have a, a nonprofit too. Is it foodinitiative.org? Is that yeah, the, the, the foodinitiative.org. And we're always looking for support there. Uh, my my uh, wife and I and our best friends co-founded that uh, back in about, oh, 12 years ago now. Okay. And um, we take high school youths and we pull them into an organic garden during the summertime in groups of 10 with a, uh, with a coach. And uh, we teach them to plant, cultivate, harvest, and then finally cook the food. And then they serve it in our local hunger relief organizations. That's excellent. And so, so they, they are the, actually the ones handing and serving this food out that they helped raise um, to people who are less fortunate. We have a, several curriculums, so they go through an education process there, a health education curriculum, a personal development curriculum, um, and a food justice curriculum so yeah. that we can start addressing the problem of food deserts. And uh, it has been so exciting. Uh, it costs about um, $1,500 to put a student through the program, and we're always looking for uh, organizations that would be willing to sponsor a student. Uh, it has been uh, been deeply supported in the community of Clarksville, Tennessee, where it exists. And we're actually looking for um, marvelous and intelligent individuals that would love to expand a nonprofit to take the curriculum and the tools we've built and bring them to their own community. So uh, we, I can't say that we have those capabilities ourselves yet. Right. But um, always putting it out there because I'm sure somebody listening to one of these things say, hey, that's something I can do. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we've built something that's really quite remarkable. And, um, uh, and it, it really is a, uh, a testimony to just the community of Clarksville coming together. Uh, we had private businesses supporting. We had uh, city grants. We've had uh, all of the public schools, all the private schools, all the military schools, the home schools, uh, everybody has been involved in this process. And um, yeah. I think it's fantastic. And that's really cool. I, I, it's one part on your website. I haven't had a chance to peruse yet, but I will definitely look into it. I've been actually looking into a couple different nonprofits to put on my website in my clinic to support and you know, give a percentage of, of sales, et cetera, to something. So maybe it's something that we could talk. Oh, about. please. We, we would, we would love, we would love that because it's, you know, the, the reason that we started it is because, you know, I would be treating patients that would be coming in sick and, and challenged. And, and we go like, wow, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could have gotten to these people earlier and, and where we, where, and where we really make the decisions, so many of the decisions of how we're going to show up the rest of our lives is during our teen years. Yeah. And, and the, those people who are influential in our teen years really can drastically change the trajectory of our life. Yeah. 
Oh yeah. And so that's where we decided to focus. So, uh, so this was really an outpouring of, uh, of, um, trying to deal with our own frustration that yeah. golly, yeah. it's, it's, uh, we would so wish we could have gotten to some of our patients earlier. So at least right. we can get to the people who are at that stage of life at this time. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, probably like you, that's why I got into this field too. Cause I was an ER doctor for a long time. And like you said, you see people at their worst and when they're pretty young, yep. and like, man, you could have prevented all this with just some simple, ah, so how do I fix that? You know, th and that's kind of what got me into this field like you. So um, I think that's awesome. I love the edu educational components. Lord knows our teens need to learn how that learn that as well. You know, heck we could all use to learn more about the, the whole process, the, the growing, the, the culturing and uh, cooking, et cetera. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, and it truly developed, Oh, we actually have a, uh, as far as the youth development part, we have them stand in a circle and about twice a week, they have to look across the circle at their peers and then give a peer a positive and a Delta. So basically give, give that person a, a constructive piece of feedback about what they saw, thought was great about their behavior in the last week. Mm -hmm. And then also a, a component of constructive criticism, I like know, being able to look in their eyes and say, yeah. Yeah, Joe, um, I noticed when we were all hoeing, you know, you were standing there not doing your part and right. that made me angry. Yeah, uh, because we have we had work to do and you weren't doing your part. I love like, that. I love that. Boom. And and so these kids, you know, all of a sudden they grow up. Yeah. Just right. Like, they're, they're adulting. Yeah. <laughs> right. They're molting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and also they go from being little mousy creatures to all of a sudden by the end of the session, they all stand up on stage and they give their little farewell addresses and um and they do some great public speaking, inspirational public speaking. That's fantastic. Just because they've gotten used to speaking uh -huh. right. to a group of people and they've developed some real self-confidence. Yeah, our, our alumni are a remarkable group of people and they have yeah. gone on to really uh, do some really remarkable things. It's been a big pivot point in their lives. So yeah, the foodinitiative.org. Anybody okay. that's listening to this that would like to support that. Um, all the money stays in the community. All the money stays with the community. Uh, I'm I'm not even on the board anymore. I, I helped start it, but have backed away entirely. Just <laughs> just 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 do my best to fund it. So I hear you. I hear you. Awesome. Excellent. Well, I don't want to take. A, I'm going to wrap it up. I don't want to take up the rest too much of your time. I so appreciate. It. It's been an awesome conversation. If you don't mind giving out your website and where else people can find sure. you, contact you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, our clinic website is uh, www.maxwellclinic.com. That stands for maximizing wellness. If somebody, everybody asks, well, who's Dr. Maxwell? <laughs> so it's maxwellclinic.com. Uh, our book is uh, Curiosity Heals the Human. Uh, you can find that on Amazon. And uh, I would love to be of service to uh, anybody in need. So. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much. Eric, thank you so much for your time and thanks for having me on. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Well, I'll be in touch uh, offline about the, the food initiatives and uh, maybe we can do this again sometime. Have, I hope everything is going well. If there's anything I can do to help in any way, let me know. Thank you. All right. All right. Do well. Have a good night. All right. Take care. Thanks.